Hello and welcome to this edition of the Freshfields Podcasts. We're all gathered in our homes in New York and London and we're here to talk about some key learnings from the recent data breach cases. I'm Rachel Annia, a senior lawyer in our international IP and data group, and I'm joined by Kim Zelnick in our global investigations team in New York. Hello. Jeff Nicholas, who leads that group. Hi. And Giles Pratt, who leads our international IP and data practice. Hi there. So with two significant GDPR decisions this month, we're talking about what businesses should know about handling and preparing for global data crises, what to look out for on deals as well from the data and cyber perspective. Just kick off with the first question, I think, perhaps to Giles. So what are the key things businesses need to think about when they're faced with a data privacy investigation from multiple regulators? I think really three points. The first is that the decisions you make in the first 48 hours could really impact the course of the investigation and the litigation for years afterwards. Secondly, needing to consider how you're going to allocate resources to engage with regulators across jurisdictions. And thirdly, having advisors at the ready who can cover all of the bases in all of the countries where you're going to need support. And maybe it's worth drilling into each of those a bit more. So firstly, what do those first 48 hours look like? Well, there are some really key do's and don'ts. Do identify your key stakeholders. Think about affected individuals, regulators, shareholders, business partners. Secondly, pick out the urgent notifications that need to be made. They might be with regulators, they might be with individuals. Thirdly, bear in mind the process with regulators may start really quickly in some countries, for example, in the EU, and get out ahead of processes in other countries where actually the litigation risk may well be very significant. Fourthly, make sure you've got consistent messaging. Fifthly, think about the mitigation measures that you've got to put in place and also prepare for a flood of complaints and queries. What shouldn't you do in those first 48 hours? Well, you shouldn't be over-promising or making assumptions about the facts because often people don't really know what's happened. And secondly, you shouldn't be creating documents that you wouldn't want to see in disclosure later on. I mentioned there were really three key pillars to what you need to do in the first 48 hours. Jeff, maybe worth picking up on the other two? Yeah, just looking at allocation of resources, because by their nature, these data breaches typically lead to the interest of regulators globally, at least in many jurisdictions around the world. And we need to work out early how we're going to prioritize our engagement with those regulators, which of those regulators are most likely to be interested. Now, part of that question is answered by the point Giles has already made, where are notifications required and where are notifications required first? Those are regulators who may well be the first with which you need to engage and may well be the first to follow up on the notifications which are given. Now, some of that may be impacted by the location of affected individuals. But the other things you need to look at is where this is going to go longer term. So which regulators have real regulatory powers in this area? And perhaps as importantly, which of those regulators have previously shown themselves to be very active in following up and investigating? And then finally, make sure you do not forget the litigation risk. It's something we'll come back to, but litigation risk is another one of the key issues you need to look at when assessing early on the prioritization of jurisdictions. And then when you look at how you're gonna deal with that, clearly you need to be thinking about the advisors you need and your ability to cover a number of jurisdictions. That's in terms of forensic analysis, communications, and importantly, obviously, in relation to legal engagement, both in terms of assessing risk 
understanding regulatory obligations and being in a position to communicate with the local regulators. So Kim, I guess we move on to what the regulators want to know in these types of situations. A very good question, Jeff. So first of all, just to highlight what Giles was saying earlier, you don't want to be providing facts where you don't actually have confidence in the information that you're giving. But you do want to get, tell the regulators what you already have identified about the incident. So what are the, what are the key facts? What failings have you identified? What steps are we taking to remediate and to mitigate? And of course, notification is critical because as Jeff was saying, we already have begun notifying key stakeholders. So what efforts are we making on that front? They're also gonna to wanna to know about you. What are your policies? What are your procedures? What are your standards? What have you learned from past audits, reports, and remediation plans? So gathering all this information when you're reaching out is gonna be critical and also being careful not to overpromise and to be providing information that you don't really have a handle on. So, but Rachel, what are we seeing in terms of how privacy regulators are getting to grips with complex technical questions? So we're seeing different levels of sophistication, I think, depending on the regulator and different levels of interest as well. And some of this comes down to the budgets that the regulators have in order to resource the investigations, because a lot of these investigations are going to be incredibly complex and the regulator will need to have the resources not only to investigate properly and come to a sustainable decision, but then also in the event the decisions are appealed to be able to actually represent present itself during that appeal. I think we will also see on the regulator side an increasing tendency to use external experts, particularly because the technical details of these investigations are likely to be particularly complex. So for clients, I think this means also making sure that you have your technical experts lined up, both in the capacity as advisors, but also potentially to act as expert witness when um, the situation arises. Giles, I think worth just looking at what are some of the hot buttons that we think regulators will be looking at from a technical perspective. Now we know that we're going to need some technical expertise. So I think we are commonly seeing a focus from regulators on monitoring within IT systems, and that, that comes in two flavours. Firstly, the way in which users of those systems are monitored and the way in which databases, obviously databases of critical personal data in particular, are monitored. And that is often part of the way regulators might look to benchmark the way security systems have been deployed, often thinking about some of the more cutting edge techniques around behavioral endpoint monitoring within IT systems. Secondly, you're looking at broader systems controls the way in which organisations have thought carefully about how to segment their network, the way in which different users can access different parts of it, perhaps using multi-factor authentication, and ensuring that there are appropriate barriers to get to the valuable confidential data within each of a business's systems. There are some more obvious measures that people can take, for example, encryption, and the regulators are very hot on understanding a business's approach to encryption. But of course, it isn't the case that everything can be encrypted all of the time. I think regulators understand that you, know, you need to be proportionate to the data and the risk in question. And then there are discussions ongoing, I think, about the extent to which regulators and businesses uh, can rely on standards informing an assessment of whether appropriate measures have been taken to protect personal data. Many businesses will be very focused on accreditation with those standards, and some of them may even have to comply with those standards to do business. But just because you comply isn't necessarily an answer to whether or not you are 
compliant with data protection law if a breach has occurred. It's worth also, I think, just reflecting on how this plays out, just as you were saying, in different countries. We've certainly seen different experiences from different regulators, and we do sometimes even see regulators wanting to get their hands on IT systems to do their own forensic review. Very commonly, this is more of a desktop review from outside an organisation with evidence in support, but you will see different appetites from different regulators, which means that it's very important to think about preservation of evidence, uh, and that will also play into the litigation piece. How much are you seeing in terms of regulators coordinating with each other? So it's a very good question. And regulators are in some jurisdictions actually required to coordinate with each other. You'll see under the GDPR in Europe. And in other jurisdictions, I think are just keen to share information. That is not necessarily being done in a structured way where at the business end, you're able to predict exactly which interactions will occur. But I think if you are on the receiving end of an investigation, it makes very good sense to plan as if the usual regulators are communicating with each other and making sure that your messaging is very consistent across what you're saying with each regulator and making sure that you tell you know, the appropriate information that's relevant to each jurisdiction as you go through the planning phases. And it impacts, obviously, the question of notification, notification obligations and where you might consider voluntarily notifying. And as you look to submit answers to more detailed questions raised by certain regulators, again, you need to think whether you should be volunteering at least part of that information to others so they feel they're engaged in the process. I think that whole coordination piece is a key part of this. Given that the UK Information Commissioner's Office is currently seen as at the forefront of some of the largest fines under the GDPR, I think it's quite interesting to just reflect on what kind of enforcement we expect to see from the Information Commissioner's Office going forward and how that may be relevant to other regulators as well. That's an interesting question, particularly in light of Brexit coming up, because the UK will no longer be able to act as lead supervisory authority. So we might start to see them where the EU is pursuing a case doing their own parallel investigations. Although I don't think the issues that the UK will see as important, the ICO, will necessarily be the same as the other EU member states. So in some situations, we may see parallel investigations, but in others, you may see either an investigation in the UK being pursued and not in the rest of the EU or vice versa. And that may be, for example, in a data breach scenario where um, individuals are impacted more significantly in one jurisdiction than the other. I think it's also worth thinking about the impact of the UK wanting an adequacy decision on the way the ICO is going to have to approach enforcement, because in order to demonstrate to the EU that they are not only regulating the GDPR style rules from a advisory perspective, they're also taking appropriate enforcement action in respect of those as well. Rachel, which of the European regulators do we think are likely to be the most active post-Brexit? I think we have already seen decisions in the sort of main member states such as France. The CENIL is very active and interested in, in various aspects of enforcement and data protection. The German regulators we know are taking a particularly active approach on on certain things like the Schrems 2 decision. And I think we also are seeing a number of perhaps lower level fines, but a lot of activity in Italy from the Garante. 
And presumably in Ireland as well, where I think the data commissioner said in 2019 that there were some 18, 19 ongoing investigations. Absolutely. Ireland's a very interesting one because they are the lead supervisor authority for a number of large tech companies, yet we haven't seen any GDPR fines come out of there yet. We are expecting to see some. And in fact, one of the first decisions has actually caught up in the EDPB the European level consistency mechanism, which is proving quite challenging for the Irish Data Protection Commissioner to finalise its first enforcement action. And that that ruling will be interesting, I guess, given the attempt at least to harmonise across jurisdictions in in terms of enforcement and levels of fines. So it's going to be an interesting space to watch. I guess the other thing to just note is that that we are seeing uh, regulators being active in their investigation of these matters outside of of Europe. In Asia, we see regulators in South Korea, in Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, and obviously in Australia uh, being very active investigations. And indeed, in some of those countries conducting investigations as thoroughly as one might anticipate they'd be conducted in Europe. Uh, We've even seen some activity in Latin America. We've seen the regulators in, in Mexico and to some extent in Brazil, where there's new legislation in terms of how they're going to approach the assessment and investigation of of data breaches. And of course, the United States and Canada and North America, both two jurisdictions that we we cannot ignore and should not ignore. Kim, I was just going to move then on to what we do to mitigate. And in particular, is there any value in a business taking mitigation steps after an incident has been identified and notified? So, yes, is the short answer, Jeff. I mean, it may very well feel to organizations that it's too late after a breach because effectively the train has already left the station. But what you do in the time immediately following a breach and in the months after is really critical. And and first of all, it's just it's the right thing to do uh, to take steps to to mitigate uh, you want your customers to know that you are doing the right thing. You want to set the right tone right from the beginning. Um, that this isn't just a regulatory issue, it's also reputational. But it will help you down the road with regulatory woes. I mean, the, there's requirements, first of all, to do so. It can be a mitigation factor that will be considered for fines. And But you also want to be thoughtful about what you're doing and whether or not it's really effective. I mean, for example, if you tell regulators that you're out there, that you're taking these steps to mitigate, and as consumers, they actually try to test the things that you have just told them you this that you are undertaking. And they've learned, for example, that your notifications aren't in local languages, that the mitigation the, the that you've offered to your to your customers uh, doesn't actually work. This is not going to help you down the road. <laughs> so you do want to take steps, of course, to mitigate, but you also want to be thoughtful about them and make sure that they're effective. And and we've seen, haven't we, in these cases that actually being proactive and explaining to regulators how you are mitigating can really yield dividends in terms of the constructive dialogue that you can create and in terms of the sorts of leniency that you might seek when it comes to the assessment of fines. So I think there is a real opportunity here for businesses who you know, instinctively will find themselves on the back foot when a crisis hits, but really to turn that tide and to move forward and, and put forward a positive agenda as, as to how they're going to help affected individuals and how they're going to explain that very clearly with, with regulators and others. That's a great point, Giles. And do you have tips for our listeners about engaging with forensic experts? Because that can be a real challenge, as you know. 
we've actually, in the work that we've done, invested a lot of time understanding the market on forensics experts. And there are a lot of really brilliant advisors out there who are able to help businesses when things go wrong. Typically, it makes sense to find the right fit between an organization and all of the kind of external professionals who, who are going to be brought to bear in that type of exercise. I think you start almost thinking about forensics experts as you might think about your lawyers. I think expertise is a given, but really the question is how well everyone is going to interact as a team when you are in crisis mode. You know, Do people really get it? Do they understand how to communicate with non-tech folks as well as the tech stakeholders? What is the experience that these people have with regulators? Are they people who understand the type of dynamics that will be involved in these global investigations and how you can manage that? Jeff, one of the key things that we've been very focused on as well is how to manage privilege in the context of, of engaging with experts. Yeah, and that's, that's particularly relevant because you're probably looking at experts covering different issues over different periods of time through, as you move through the, the follow-on to a, a data breach incident. Obviously, day one, you need to be able to analyse how the breach took place, how you're going to respond to that breach, and how you can immediately ensure that the security of your system is not compromised going forward. So you need expertise in that area very, very quickly. And those people may not be the people you end up using as you try to understand better the adequacy of the security measures which are in place in relation to your systems when you start to address the sorts of issues that the regulators are raising. And indeed, obviously, when you're looking to ensure that you've got the relevant expertise in the context of any litigation that that may well follow, indeed is likely to follow in the context of a major data breach. Uh, And one of the key issues there, particularly when you're looking at these global type issues, is privilege or at least the protection of confidentiality around the the expertise you're getting. Because you have to be having a very open dialogue with experts during these periods of time, because you're in a period when you're looking to understand You don't have clarity as to what the issues are, and therefore you need to be thinking through, how do I have the sort of open dialogue that's going to allow me to do the things I need to do day one, but at the same time doesn't compromise my ability to respond to regulators or in litigation going forward. And in that context, clearly you should be aware of the different rules one sees in North America around privilege, in the UK around privilege, and obviously in the civil law countries. It's absolutely critical day one issue And again, something people can forget when they're trying to deal with the immediacy of the situation. So Jeff, to that point, I mean, I think for American clients, I mean, we frequently have the view that as long as you're complying with U.S. rules and thinking about privilege through a U.S. lens, that that's going to be sufficient because the presumption often is, is that U.S. rules are the sort of the strongest. Does that work in a a multi-jurisdictional context? Uh, unfortunately not. Um, just a, a simple test to start off with. In, in England, the issue is not whether it's privileged under the laws of another country. The question is whether it's privileged under English law. So whether it's privileged as a matter of US law is, is sort of irrelevant to an assessment in the, in the UK. So there are ways that, of doing this if one just gives some attention to it and, and recognises the broad nature of the issues here. I think one of the key mistakes you can make in responding to an issue of this type is to focus on the jurisdiction where the issues first arise as if you're not going to have to address issues in other jurisdictions. And so in most major data breach cases, you're going to have to think North America and Europe at least. And I think our own experience tells us 
Asia is is to be added to that equation because we're seeing a lot of activity there and and regulators who are willing to test these issues like privilege in those jurisdictions. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And also, I I think it's fair to say that it's also just important for people to understand when things aren't going to be privileged so that they know that when they're creating documents, when they're sending emails, that they may not get the privilege protection with respect to those communications, with respect to those materials, so that they can manage that risk appropriately. So it's not just about cloaking everything in privilege that you can cloak. Uh, that is important to, to think about, but understanding what's going to be outside the scope of that. One of the things we've done as a, as a firm in trying to assess the litigation risk which is associated with these data breaches is try to look at where actions are most likely to be brought or at least most likely to be brought in an effective way. Uh, and one of the things to, to note in relation to a data breach is that in all likelihood, not in all cases, but in all likelihood, the level of potential loss per affected data subject could well be low. Therefore, when you're looking at litigation risk, one of the, one of the key issues to think about is where collective actions might be capable of being brought, whether we call them class actions, representative actions, group litigation, as we talk about in, in, in the UK and parts of continental Europe, looking at where there's an ability to bring such actions. And we've done a risk analysis looking at jurisdictions around the world there. And there's some noticeable hotspots in that regard, particularly where you're matching up regulators who are very active, coupled with jurisdictions where there are class action regimes and, and indeed litigation funding. Clearly, the UK is one of them. Obviously, the US is one of them. Canada, Australia, but certain countries in continental Europe as well, the Netherlands, Germany, Spain, and also obviously in, in, in the Asia-Pac region, you've got Australia. That sort of focus on the entirety of the risk, both regulatory and litigation risk, I think, again, is something you need to do fairly early. Rachel, just looking at the UK in particular, is it worth mentioning some of the developments we're seeing here in terms, in particular, of the loss that might be recoverable in a data breach case? Yes, I think it's interesting at the moment in the UK from the collective action perspective. We see the traditional route, so the group litigation order you've already sort of touched on as an as an opt-in claim, but there is also a, a current claim going through the courts and due to be heard by the Supreme Court next year in, in Lloyd and Google, which is really looking at what loss can be claimed for a breach of data protection legislation. And so we already know from the GDPR you can claim for either material or non-material loss and in the UK that's already been understood to include distress but what Lloyd and Google is looking at is whether you can claim for a mere loss of control of data and that's interesting from two perspectives not only does it lower the bar in terms of what you can claim for a breach of data protection legislation but it also because of the way these actions are being brought in the UK makes it easier to form a class so this is being done as a representative action under an opt-out procedure and for that you need to have the same interest across the class so you can see that if you're trying to claim that the distress levels are the same across a large class of individuals that's going to be pretty difficult but something like a loss of control is going to be easier to establish is the same across the class and therefore make the procedural aspects of an opt-out claim easier. But presumably there'll still be issues or could be issues as to whether or not a representative action would be appropriate just based on the nature and type of data that may have been impacted by the data breach. 
Yes, I think that is very true. I think that depending on the type of data breach is going to depend on the type of action that we're going to see most likely to be brought. And it's really the litigation funders who are driving these developments in the UK. And and so ultimately it'll come down to what is uh, easier to get the largest amount of money, I think. Charles, is there anything businesses can do to prepare for such a situation? We've obviously touched on quite a few things that people could do to prepare, but maybe stepping back, this is really about bringing together all of the relevant teams, both internally and externally. Internally, you'll be thinking about your in-house legal function, your comms teams, your technology teams, your cybersecurity teams. It's about making sure that they are closely aligned with external advisors that they would need all to spring into action at a moment's notice. There's also a bit of housekeeping with this. It's about making sure your policies, procedures, your governance are all in order, making sure that if you do need to escalate an incident, that it's going to have very senior buy-in from a very early stage. And that often helps a business react quickly and also plays very well in the regulatory environment when you come to explain how you've responded. Essentially, the message that you're trying to communicate to regulators is that bad things can unfortunately happen to good people. And so it's really about making sure that everyone is on standby and ready to respond in that way. So let's just turning to thinking about this in, in a different context. What should businesses be looking at um, in, in the context of an M&A transaction uh, in terms of thinking about cyber risk and data breach risk? What we're really seeing is regulatory appetite to take a hard look at companies on the basis of the deals that they're doing and the data privacy and cybersecurity readiness of their acquisition and their integration efforts. That, I think, calls into focus the data and cyber due diligence that people are undertaking on deals. And that is true both in private M&A and on public deals. And I think you can't underestimate the interest that regulators will take, even on the types of cyber diligence that are done on public deals, even bearing in mind that it is often very hard to do due diligence in that type of scenario. Where there is only limited opportunity for diligence early on in a transaction, I think then the regulatory focus probably is is likely to pivot towards what is done in the migration and integration effort on a deal. That means, for example, thinking about how risk assessments are carried out, how remediation steps are flagged within the different activities that you do as part of that that integration diligence, and then what steps you take in order to improve the situation as you move forward uh, with your integration plans. Quite often, people's plans change as they go through an integration process as part of a large transaction. That is entirely business as usual. And I think whilst regulators will respect that, they will also expect that continual reassessment of the privacy risk and the cybersecurity posture as you go through. You know, one of the related challenges here is, I think, the way in which regulation is cast so as to set, at least in Europe, fines by reference to the global turnover of a group of businesses. And when you do bring a foreign business into your home turf, you do have to ask yourself whether or not that is creating a different magnitude of risk. Because if a regulator looks at whether or not something in that business has been done poorly, they may well be assessing it by reference to the global turnover of the entire new group that that business finds itself in. 
So I do think people need to see this risk in the context of that go forward position. And that is something that I think will be very much front of mind in light of some of the new guidance that we're seeing come out of the regulators, or at least seeing up for consultation from regulators in Europe. And that really does look to the global turnover as a benchmark for the possibility of fine setting. Rachel, one of the things that clients are often interested in in the context of these types of decisions is are the regulators starting to give us better insight as to what they would deem good data security? Are we seeing that either through the decisions themselves or are we seeing that through guidance which is being issued by the regulators? So I think certainly in the UK, um, there's a lot of sort of general guidance about how to comply with various aspects of the GDPR issued by the Information Commissioner, and it's known for being quite uh, prolific in terms of the guidance it puts out. However, in terms of the um, specifics around security, there is actually not very much detail uh, in a way that businesses could actually use that to determine what they need to do. So there are sort of nods to the types of issues that might need to be looked at and references out to other bodies such as the National Cyber Security Centre, but not really sort of a roadmap. And we're not really seeing that in the decisions either. And so whilst once you get to grips with the facts, you can start to see the types of issues that are arising, they aren't an easy guide. But we are starting to see a pattern of the types of things that regulators are most likely to be interested in and sort of a steer, but they're not making it very easy for people, I think. I, I've heard people say that's deliberate, that, that actually what the regulators are looking to do here is get businesses to both, obviously from a business standpoint, recognise the value of data to them as a business, but at the same time, wanting them to equally prioritise the risks around that data and therefore the steps they need to take to secure that data. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yes, I think certainly the ICO has always been very sort of trying to drive compliance, as it were. So really focusing where organisations are involved in high risk processing or large volumes of uh, processing of personal data, that the uh, measures that they take are going to have to match those risks. And I think it's an interesting point that's been made in contrast between the Irish Data Protection Commissioner and across other regulators in the EU as what's the best way to drive that? Is that through the imposition of fines or is that directing people through positive steps and the way to uh, to move forward? And I think we're going to start to see some of that um, how to best drive behaviour play out on a European stage going forward. Completely agree with all of that. And I suspect that part of that is that the way in which regulators are deliberately offering credits for mitigation steps is again about driving that positive culture of behaviour within organisations and making sure that there will be recognition for the right action being taken. So that just leaves me to say thank you very much to Giles, Jeff and Kim for that really interesting discussion. If you're interested in listening to more of our podcasts or finding out more about these issues, please do look on our website at freshfields.com. Thank you.